there's that sense of of we've of lost connection, and to help us sort of decode that, uh, talk about that, I'm joined on the line by uh, Johan Hari. Uh, who we were supposed to have a conversation with the last time, but unfortunately, because of a bad connection, we couldn't have that conversation. So I'm really uh, happy uh, to to have uh, have him with us on on Skype. Is a New York uh, Times uh, best-selling author, a TEDx Global London speaker, as well as a journalist. And we're talking about depression, the real causes of depression, uh, depression, and the surprising uh, solutions, for lack of a better term, uh, to that. Good evening to you, Jan, and thank you for joining us, man. Oh, hey, guys. Sure, it's really good to be with you. Great stuff, man. Great stuff. Um, so let's let's get down to it. I mean, depression. Um, when we talk about depression, are we talking about depression from the clinical understanding that we have? Do we um, talk about, you know, me feeling a bit blue, down and out, not feeling quite myself? You know, it's interesting. One of the things that I think this crisis and the kind of nightmare that's happening to all of us can can help us with actually is it can help us to understand that we've actually really deeply misunderstood depression and anxiety for a really long time and i think this crisis and the depression and anxiety it's causing can actually help us to understand what was causing these problems for a lot of people all along so i wrote my book lost connections on this subject because there were these two mysteries that were really hanging over me the first mystery is i'm 41 years old and all throughout my lifetime depression and anxiety have increased in the Western world. Year after year after year, more and more of us have become depressed and anxious. And I wanted to understand why, right? Why is this happening to us? Why is it that with each year that passes, more and more of us are finding it harder to get through the day? And this was, of course, before COVID, which has supercharged it, right? And I wanted to understand that because of a more personal mystery, which is that, you know, when I was a teenager... I remember going to my doctor and explaining that I had this feeling like pain was leaking out of me. Mm. I couldn't control it. I, I couldn't, I didn't understand why it was happening. I was quite ashamed of it. And my doctor told me a story that lots of your listeners will have been told, which I now realize wasn't totally wrong, but was really hugely oversimplified. My doctor said, well, we know why some people get like this. Some people just naturally have something wrong in their brain. They have a chemical imbalance. They lack a chemical called serotonin. You're clearly one of them. All we need to do is give you some drugs and you'll be fine. So I started taking a chemical antidepressant called Paxil or Siroxat. And it did give me a bit of relief for a while, but the depression came back. I was taking higher and higher doses. It kept coming back Mm. until for 13 years, I was taking the maximum possible dose you're allowed to take. And at the end of this, I was thinking, well, what's going on here? Because... I'm doing everything I'm being told to do according to the story that I'm being told about why so many of us feel like this, and I still feel awful. So to get to the bottom of this, I used my training in the social sciences at Cambridge University to just travel all over the world. I traveled over 30,000 miles to sit with the leading experts in the world about what causes depression and anxiety and crucially what solves them, and people with very different perspectives. And I, I learned a huge amount. But the heart of what, and it really goes to your question, because I thought there was this thing called clinical depression which was when there's just something biological that's happened to you right Mm, and mm. then there's the implicit division in what you said which i totally had as well which is and then there's just feeling sad and so on Mm, what i actually mm. learned is the truth is more complex there's scientific evidence for nine different causes of depression and anxiety two of them are indeed in our biology that's not a wrong thing to tell people it's absolutely accurate um 
but they're just one part of a much bigger picture. The other seven causes are not factors in our biology. They're factors in the way we live. And once you understand them, it gives you, it begins to open up a very different set of solutions that I've seen being put into practice all over the world. I mean, I find that absolutely fascinating. So can we talk a bit, a bit about the, those causes of depression, sure, the, the sure. different causes of depression, and more specifically, the lives that we lead? Because as I said, as I introed at the beginning of the conversation, um, you know, we're living in, you know, we're living in a more congested, populated world. So you know, it's not as if you and I are short of people. I mean, you're living, I take it that you're in London. I'm, I'm in Johannesburg. Mm, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, they are big cities, both of them. Um, you throw a stone, you're going to hit someone. And yet, for some reason, we find ourselves still feeling extremely disconnected, still feeling extremely lonely, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, I think you've gone to a really, in a way, one of the most obvious causes, um, which is absolutely right, um, and that I, I, I learned a lot about, uh, which is loneliness, right? So um, it's really interesting, I spent a lot of time discussing, I mean, there's been a huge increase in, in loneliness across the Western world. There's an incredible study that asks Americans, how, uh, US citizens, how many close friends do you have who you could turn to in a crisis? And when they started doing it years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer is none. There are more Americans who feel they have nobody to turn to than any other option. Uh, a similar study found that 40% of Americans agree with the statement, nobody knows me well. And this explosion in loneliness happened all over the developed world. And I wanted to, and, and it's kind of obvious that that causes depression, although I, there's a lot of scientific evidence as well. But I'm trying to get to the bottom of this, and it really goes to exactly that question you're asking about. How come we're lonely when we're surrounded by people, right? Mm. The, the, uh, to understand this, I went to interview the leading expert in the world on loneliness, a totally amazing man named Professor John Cassiopo, who was at the University of Chicago. And he taught me uh, so many things, but, but I remember him saying to me, you know, why do we exist, right? You, me, everyone listening to this program, why are we here? One key reason is that our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really good at one thing. They weren't bigger than the animals they took down a lot of the time. They weren't faster than the animals they took down a lot of the time. But they were much better at banding together into tribes and cooperating. Just like bees evolved to live in a hive, humans evolved to live in a tribe. And we are the first humans ever to try to disband our tribes, to tell ourselves that we can do it alone, to, to live in this very unusual way. And I remember there was a particularly interesting thing that he discovered about loneliness that goes to a question, of course, the saying we're all thinking about a lot in lockdown, and I think also can help us find a way out of this loneliness. So I remember him saying to me, when he started studying loneliness, obviously, if you want to study something, you've got to define it, right? And uh -huh. so he's thinking, how can I define loneliness? And it seems like a, almost like a weird question, because it doesn't feel like a hard concept to pin down anyone. If you say to them, are you lonely? Every human being knows what that means, right? But actually, at first, the kind of what seemed like common sense ways of understanding it didn't work. So instinctively, I thought, oh, loneliness means being alone, right? It means you don't see many people or you don't interact with many people. But actually, what he found is that isn't a very good predictor for whether people feel lonely. Some people, like you say, speak to people all the time and don't feel lonely. It's just like, well, what's going on here? It turns out there's a quite a specific thing. Loneliness isn't about how many people you see every day. Loneliness is about whether you share something meaningful with them. So 
everyone listening to this show, if the first time you go to New York City, you go to Times Square and you stand in the middle of Times Square, mm. you will not be alone, right? You can't move your arms around you without being surrounded by people. Mm. And yet you'll probably feel lonely because you don't share anything with these people. They don't know your name. They don't care about you. You don't care about them. And at the other end, we've all had the experience, or most of us have had the experience of when you're in a relationship that starts to break down and the other person is still physically there, but you actually feel quite lonely because the sense of meaning between you has broken down. So loneliness is about a lack of feeling you share something meaningful that goes both ways with somebody. And although we have to be physically separated at the moment because of this terrible crisis, we don't have to be separated in terms of meaning, right? There are all sorts of things we can do to build meaning together. Some of them are really basic, like I've been phoning people I haven't spoken to in years that I have helped me at some point in my life. I phoned a load of my old teachers who I hadn't spoken to in 25 years mm, just mm. to thank them, right? There's all sorts of ways. And, and then I would argue there are big forms of political campaigning that we can do at the moment about dealing with some of the other causes of depression and anxiety that I'm sure we'll get to, where we can pressure our governments to deal with them. There's all sorts of ways, both on a personal level and at a bigger level, that we can build meaning. And meaning is the path out of loneliness. So I hate oversharing, especially on, on discussions like these, because oh, obviously, <laughs> no, no, because right. the thing is, is, is a, I, you know, I'm, I, I do regard myself as somewhat of a private person, but at the same time also, you know, uh, I don't want to come across as self-indulgent, but I'll, I'll use this small opportunity to, to be a little self-indulgent. I, I always think of the example of friendships, you know, I had plenty of mates when I was at university. I still do regard them as friends. Um, but you lose touch after, you know, you've, you have the family, you have the job, you have the middle class lifestyle, um, you know, you, you doing this, you're doing that. Um, now dinners mean that, you know, it's somehow work related or, or something to that effect, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. You know, that's, that's how your life changes and it adds and it, it sort of isolates you more. It adds to that sense of loneliness if you catch my drift because of, where your priorities lie. Now, your priorities don't just lie with simply connecting and having a chuckle and a chat with a mate. Now, your priority is, you know, what is in it for me uh, type of thing. Do you think that that is ultimately the center of the problem that we're facing in society, that a lot of this has to do that with the fact that relationships are largely transactional as opposed to meaningful on another level? I think this goes to such an important cause of depression and anxiety. It's one of the nine that I write about in my book, Lost Connections, that I found actually most challenging, to be honest, to be confessional myself. Um, so everyone knows that uh, junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick, right? I don't say that with any sense of superiority. I've been crying that McDonald's has been shut down. <laughs> just, like, just like junk food has, has taken over our diets and made us physically sick, there's really interesting evidence that a kind of junk values have taken over our minds and made us physically sick. And it's exactly what you're talking about. For thousands of years, philosophers have said, look, if you think life is about money and status and showing off, if you think that's the main thing you should seek out of life, you're going to feel like crap, right? That's not an exact quote from Confucius, but that is basically what he said, right? Weirdly, <laughs> I would love to read actually... that Confucius quote. I've read it, it's the gist of it. Uh, but weirdly, <laughs> nobody had actually scientifically investigated this until a brilliant man I got to know named Professor Tim Kasser, who's at Knott's College in Illinois. And Professor Kasser discovered two really important things. Firstly, as a society, as a culture, and he included South Africa in his research, we have become much more driven 
by the belief that life is about money and status and showing off. And secondly, he showed the more you believe those things, the more likely you are to become depressed and anxious. There's all sorts of ways he explained this. Actually, you, I think you put it really well yourself. There's a little experiment um, that I think just kind of illustrates it at the core of it, right? They uh-huh. got, in 1978, they got a group of five-year-old kids and they split them into two groups. And the first group was shown an advert for whatever the equivalent of Dora the Explorer or the Teletubbies was in 1978. I forget what it was, a specific toy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure. group of kids were shown no advert, right? No advertisement. And then the kids are told, all of them, okay, kids, you've got a choice. You can play now either with a really nice boy who hasn't got any toys at the moment mm. or a nasty boy who's got the toy that was in the advert, right? And the kids who saw the advert overwhelmingly chose to play with the nasty boy and the kids who had not seen the advertisement overwhelmingly chose to play with the nice boy who didn't have any toys, right? So just seeing one advertisement primed those kids to choose, you know, a lump of plastic over the possibility of fun and connection, right? Now, we are all exposed to far more messaging like this all the time. For the mm, m- mm. more old children know what the McDonald's M means than know their own last name. From the moment we're born, we're immersed in a machine that tells us you should seek happiness through buying crap you don't need, displaying it on social media to make your friends jealous, and then when you feel strangely empty, buy work harder at a job you don't like to buy more crap to display more of that on social media. We're trained, as Professor Kasser put it to me, we're trained to seek happiness in all the wrong places. And and he did this really interesting experiment that was about okay, how can we overcome that, mm. right? it's a very simple experiment and i really urge everyone listening to try this you can do it on zoom with your friends or skype or whatever he got together with a a guy who i also interviewed for the book called nathan dungan Mm. who's a financial advisor in minneapolis and nathan's job is to advise people on like budgeting like their family budget that sort of thing and one day he got a call from a school it was a kind of middle class school it wasn't a fancy one it wasn't a poor area it's kind of middle class and they said, look, we've got a problem. We hope you can help us. Mm. The kids at our school are obsessed with getting the latest sneakers, the latest iPhone, whatever it was. And they're getting really angry with their parents if they can't afford them. And it's causing a lot of tension within the school and for the kids, right? And for the mm, parents. Mm, mm. You come in and just talk to these kids about like budgeting. So Nathan goes in. It's not what he normally does. But Nathan goes in and he starts talking to these kids about budgeting and quickly realizes these kids do not give a damn about budgeting. There's something deeper going on, right? They just do not want to hear that their parents can't afford this stuff. So he's thinking, what could he do? So he teamed up with with Professor Casa, who I mentioned, and they did a a really interesting intervention. This is what I recommend people try. They got the parents and their kids, but you can do it just as adults. They got the parents and their kids to meet once every two weeks for months. And it was a kind of like a kind of Alcoholics Anonymous for consumerism and spending. So what they did is, the first time they meet, they said to all the, ki- the, the parents and the kids, just write a list of what you've got to have. Right? They didn't define what that meant. They just write everything you've got to have. Mm. And of course, everyone initially says like, you know, a house, food, the obvious stuff. Mm. But quite quickly, people start naming things that you don't have to have, right? Nike sneakers, the parents would name like expensive handbags, particular kind of car, whatever it would be. Mm, mm. And Tim and Nathan said to them, okay, describe to me how your life would be different if you got these, so let's say these Nike sneakers. 
And what's interesting is nobody said, oh, uh, you know, I want to be a basketball player and I'll be able to jump higher or whatever. <laughs> no one said that, Exactly. Right? They said things like, well, I want to be accepted by people. Mm. I want to be envied by people. I want to be part of the group. It doesn't take long to get people to say that out loud before they start going, oh, wait a minute, why do I think... Why do I think I'll be envied if I've just got like a different branded piece of plastic? But more impo- what they did next was even more important. So they do a little bit of taking apart people's junk values, the things we've been taught to crave that when you stop and think about it, you just think, why do I want this crap? Mm. But more importantly, they said, okay, now we want you to just write down a few moments in your life when you have felt meaning and purpose. And different people named different things, right? Some people named, you know, um, uh, playing music or writing or mm. running on the beach. Yeah, we could all think of some. I'm sure everyone listening now can think of a moment, right? And then they said to the group, okay, how could you build more of your life around pursuing these moments of meaning and purpose and less around buying this crap that actually you can see doesn't make you happy? And they just checked in every couple of weeks to discuss it. And what was fascinating was, just having these conversations led to a measurable shift in people's values that we know leads to a reduction in depression and anxiety. It was about people refocusing to look for happiness in the places where it actually lies. And it's, and it's a weird thing because in some ways this is kind of obvious, right? If I said to anyone listening to your show, are you going to lie on your deathbed and think about all the shoes you bought and all the likes you got on Instagram? No. You're going to exactly. lie on your deathbed think about moments of love and meaning and connection but we but we live in a machine that is designed to divert us from thinking about that stuff and is designed to drive us towards pointless spending mm. and we can recalibrate that's in our power i mean i find it fascinating what you're saying there and i can uh, you know i can relate to it i can think about it, my own experience where and i don't see myself as being someone that's particularly materialistic in fact i'm, I'm quite frankly the opposite you know a lot of the time i'm referred to as being frugal if not just plain down being a, cha- a cheapskate but at the same time you know it's <laughs> um you know I, I i can relate to the idea of how we place value on things and you know, something that ultimately you turn around and you say has economic value to it. But at the very same time, and, and this is what my question always is, and, and, and don't take me wrong, Johan, but not all of us can sort of live the life of the traveler. That at, sure, in my sure. 20s, I grab a, a backpack and I bugger off to Borneo and then I bugger off to Myanmar, you know, and then I'm in India and I find myself and then I fly over to Paris and have wine and those are my lasting memories and then one day I'm I'm in London and I fall in love and get married or have whatever connection etc etc you know it's it's not always possible uh for people to to have that and I think that makes it a bit difficult then ultimately because you know you you go to school and and maybe it's part of our programming maybe that's exactly what the problem is but our programming is you're going to spend 12 years in school you're going to spend another three to four years at university or college or whatever the equivalent is. And then after that, you go find a job. Pretty soon after that, you find your life partner. You, the two of you get connected. And then after that, you have children. Um, what you are saying to a large extent almost challenges that mindset, that thinking, that type of, uh, you know, the, the, that what we prepare ourselves for as, as our lives forever. I think a lot of people can and do find happiness in those situations and aren't depressed yeah i think we need to look at it in a slightly um 
how do I put it, a slightly tighter way in a way, because there's there, there's all sorts of elements in the way we live that are right and good and are better than they were in the past. This isn't about saying, you know, things were magically better once upon a time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not about saying, you know, I mean, I think about my family, you know, my dad's a bus driver, my brother's an Uber driver. Um, the, you know, I, 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 it would be ridiculous to say people would just, oh, well, just quit your job and go and live on a beach in Hawaii, right? I mean, everyone would love to do that. Mm-hmm. You can't. You're absolutely right. That's why a lot of my book, Lost Connections, is about partly about the individual changes we can make, but also about the ways we need to change how our societies work to to um, to reduce depression and anxiety. I'll give you an obvious example that's going to be playing out for a huge number of your listeners now. Mm. Financial insecurity causes depression and anxiety. Big time. There's a huge amount of evidence of this. Um, <clears throat> and in a way, it seems to me incredible that... that um, that we have to prove this through scientific studies. If you'd said to my grandmother or your grandmother, do you think not, you know, being really stressed out about money makes you more or less happy? My grandmother would have clipped me around the ear and asked why I was wasting her time with such a stupid <laughs> question. But what we've done, think about, think about this. In, let's think about it again in relation to the US, uh, where I, I did a lot of the research. Um, and I suspect there's a lot of evidence for this in South Africa, although it's, I know it's a more complicated picture there. Um, so there's been a huge increase in financial insecurity in the United States over the last 40 years. Basically, money has been transferred to the, the – I'm not saying this is exactly like South Africa. It's not. Uh, the, in the U.S., money has been transferred to the rich. There's been all sorts of things that have happened. There's been mm. a real decline in the middle class to the point where half of all Americans, when this crisis began, didn't have $400 in savings through no port of their own, right? Mostly through no port of their own. Um, so you've had this big increase in financial insecurity. At the same time, you've had a really big increase in depression and anxiety. It's a pretty obvious relationship. It's not happening to everyone. Of course, there are some rich people who become depressed and so on. But you can see there's something clearly going on there. And yet, when those people go to their doctors, they too often are told a very simplistic story. Oh, there's just something that's gone wrong in your brain. Mm. In fact, we know people who have an income from property are 10 times less likely, an independent private income from property are 10 times less likely to develop an anxiety problem than people who don't, right? So now, that's been going on for a long time in a lot of parts of the world, this collapse of the middle class, this increase in anxiety and depression as a result. Now, fast forward to the coronavirus crisis, where, you know, most people are afraid for their job, for their, you know, for obvious reasons, right? And obviously, that's led to a really big increase in depression and anxiety. Now, there are things we can do about that, right? There are, let's think about El Salvador. El Mm. Salvador is, the, one of the poorest countries in the world. I've been there. This is not a rich country that can splash around money. Yeah. The government of El Salvador has suspended everyone's rent payments and utility bill payments until this crisis is over. It's partly because you can't tell people to stay at home if they can't keep the roof over their heads if they stay at home, right? So Maybe our government needs to start looking at it yeah. <laughs> as an idea. Or, or, yeah. let's think about, or let's think about, uh, and let's think about this after the crisis as well really interesting experiment happened in Canada um, in the 1970s that I write about in my book, Lost Connections. So, and I think this is, in a way, a big part of what I'm arguing in my book is that we need to expand our idea of what an antidepressant is, right? Anything that reduces depression and anxiety should be regarded as an antidepressant. For some people, that will include drugs. It did for me for a while. But precisely because this problem goes so much deeper than our biology, the solutions need to go much deeper too. You don't solve loneliness by drugging someone. You don't solve financial insecurity by drugging someone. Now, it might take the edge off and that's worth doing for some people. But you need to deal with the underlying problem. You know, there's a, a person who, 
really helped me to, it's funny, I, lots of scientists explain this to me, and it only really fell into place for me when an amazing South African explained it to me, a guy called Dr. Derek Summerfield, and, and he's a psychiatrist. And Dr. Summerfield happened to be in Cambodia in 2001 when they first introduced chemical antidepressants for people in that country. Mm. And the local doctors, the Cambodians, had never heard of these drugs. So they were like, what are they? And he, he explained. And they said to him, oh, we don't need them. We've already got antidepressants. And he said, what do you mean? He thought they were going to talk about some kind of like herbal remedy, like, oh, I don't oh. know, Chicobaloba, something like that. That's what I was expecting. <laughs> exactly. Instead, they told us something completely different. They told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who worked in the rice fields. And one day he stood on a landmine left over from the war with the Americans mm. and he got his leg blown off. So they gave him an artificial leg. They're good at that. And uh, after a few months, he went back to work in the rice fields. But apparently it's really painful to work underwater when you've got an artificial leg. And I'm guessing it was pretty traumatic because like, he's back in the field where he got blown up. The guy started to cry all day. After a few months, he just refused to get out of bed because he was crying so much. He developed classic depression, right? Mm. Well, actually quite serious depression. And this is when the Cambodian doctors said to Dr. Summerfield, well, this is when we gave him an antidepressant. And Dr. Summerfield said, what was it? They explained that they went and sat with him. They listened to him. They realized that his pain made sense, right? It had actually quite obvious causes when you talked to him for five minutes. One of the doctors figured, if we bought this guy a cow... He could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't have to go into these fields. He wouldn't be in this position that was screwing him up so much. So they bought him a cow. Within a couple of weeks, his crying stopped. Within a month, his depression was gone. It never came back. They said to Dr. Summerfield, so you see, doctor, that cow, that was an antidepressant. That's what you mean, right? Now, if you've been raised oh. to think about depression the way we have, that mm. it's primarily or entirely a problem with your biology, that sounds like a joke, right? I, I went to my doctor for an antidepressant. She gave me a cow. Oh, exactly. But, but what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively is what, in fact, the leading medical body in the whole world, the World Health Organization, has been trying to tell us for years. If you're depressed, if you're anxious... You're not crazy. You're not weak. You're not, in the main, mm. a machine with broken parts. You're a human being with needs that are not being met. And what you need is love, help, and support to get those needs met. Everyone listening to your show knows they have natural physical needs, right? Mm. Obviously, you need food, water, shelter, clean air. If those things are taken away from you, you're screwed, right? But there's equally strong evidence that all human beings have natural psychological needs, you need to feel you belong. Mm. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You should have got a future you understand, right? And, and, and we've been getting less and less good at meeting these underlying psychological needs for people for a long time. And we need to start talking and thinking about them and then dealing with those problems. So what I find fascinating is obviously uh, a while back, there was a massive discussion in and around the idea of... Um, uh, you know, a, a treatment of depression being related to exercise, physical activity, that type of thing. I mean, coming back to it, that then leaves us with this conundrum or this really tough question to answer. And that is the, the on the one end, scientists and, and, you know, doctors telling us that, listen, yeah, dude, you need medication to be able to treat your 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 depression versus this notion of, exercise and now you're talking about something that is actually 
common sense and makes absolute sense. And this is this idea of humanity and how much of our humanity we've lost. And that is what we're in conflict with or human nature that we've lost. And that's what we're in conflict with leading to uh, so much of the depression that we're feeling. Where does that then leave us? Um, so I think what's really, I think it's a really important question. I think it's important to stress there are three kinds of cause of depression and anxiety, and they're all real. So there are biological causes, like your genes can make you more sensitive to these problems. They don't write your destiny. And there are real changes that happen in your brain when you become depressed that can make it harder to get out. And then there's psychological causes. Um, you know, if you've been sexually abused as a child would be an extreme example that affect how you think about yourself. And then there are social causes like loneliness, financial insecurity, uh, have been controlled at your at work. Um, they're all real. We need to deal with all of them where we can. But I think you're right to go to something like, so what's happened up to now, for way too long, for I think 40 years now, more or less, pretty much all of my lifetime, um, we've talked only or primarily about the biological causes. And we've massively neglected the psychological and social causes. Those biological causes are real. Uh, for some people, drugs give some relief. That's hugely valuable. Anyone listening to this who's getting relief from drugs, as I did for a while, my advice to you is to carry on. But we've got to be honest about this. We've had, you know, more than 30 years of massively increasing chemical antidepressant prescriptions, and depression is still rising, right? It doesn't mean that the drugs aren't giving some people some relief. They are. But they're clearly not solving the problem for most people. Because the causes go so much deeper than that, right? If it was a purely biological problem, just drugging people might solve it. But it's not. These are much deeper causes. And we need to. And part of the problem with this overly biological way of talking about it, and I want to stress again, there's some reality to the biology, and it's important to talk about the reality of it. But if, if all you talk about is the biology, what you're effectively saying to people is, and this isn't anyone's intention, but what you're effectively saying to people is your pain doesn't mean anything, right? It's like a glitch in a computer program. Mm. And, 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 the most, and that's what I thought about my pain for a really long time. It meant I didn't think about it more deeply. It meant I didn't understand its, what, its deeper causes in my life. And I didn't deal with them. And actually, the most important thing I learned is the best science on depression and anxiety show, if you're depressed and anxious, your pain makes sense. You feel this way for reasons that might that seem mysterious when you're in the middle of the pain of it a lot of the time, but actually can be understood and more importantly, can be dealt with. So you mentioned exercise. It's a really good example. Think about non-human animals. Animals in zoos go crazy. Yeah. I recently interviewed a, a psychiatrist, who, uh, an, a veterinarian called Dr. Nicholas Dobman, who pioneered... So, Polar bears go crazy in zoos, right? Naturally, yeah. in the wild, polar bears walk something like 100 miles a day or something, extraordinary yeah. amount. Mm. And obviously, in a zoo, they can't do anything. So they start rocking. And this guy, Dr. Nicholas Dobman, this is called zookosis, right? It's animal psychosis. And Nicholas Dobman pioneered just giving Prozac to polar bears. Now, if you go to the zoo and you see a polar bear that's not rocking, it's because it's been given huge amounts of drugs, right? This is done with loads of zoo animals. Now, to me... That hasn't solved the problem, right? The problem is polar bear don't want to be in the zoo, right? Polar bear wants to be walking 100 miles a day. It's incredibly cruel. The and to be fair to Nicholas Dobman, Dr. Dobman, he agrees with this as well. Solution is shut down the damn zoo, right? Mm. And you see this about animals across the, you know, all and humans, of course, are animals as well, but non-human animals. 
Loads of animals go mad when they're taken away from their natural habitat. Uh, parrots will rip out their feathers. Um, horses will start obsessively swaying. It's called cribbing. Um, elephants will grind their tusks, which are a great source of pride in the wild, down to like bloody stumps. Um, we don't want to be captive. And mm. It's interesting. The only circumstances where animal, uh, where non-human animals will show something that looks like depression is when they are in captivity. And in a way, the way we live is like captivity, right? And what we've got to do is think, well, how do we become freer? How do we get out of this mad state of captivity? And obviously, I go through a lot of the ways we can do that in my book, Lost Connections. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really fascinated by what you're saying, and, and I'll give you an opportunity towards the end of our conversation to, to tell us where we can get Lost Connections, especially for a, a South African audience. But there's another book that you had written, um, you know, Chasing the Scream. And, and that for me is something else. And, and do the two tie in? Because obviously the first one deals with addiction, right? And, and we see that there's a massive problem with addiction as well within inverted commas, modern metropolitan society. Um, I can't really think of, and, and come to think of it, I can't think of a rural area, for example, where you have a problem with duck or uh, what, what, what uh, you would probably call methamphetamine on your, you know, on your side of the world or um, you know, whatever other designer drug uh, that people are taking. So I'd just like to, or heroin or whatever the case is, is does, do the two connect? With yeah, me it was then seeking the, thrills through, I don't know, some mind-numbing, mind-altering state. I would put it slightly differently, but I think you're right. Um, you know, actually, I wrote my book about depression, anxiety, lost connections because of the unanswered questions in my book about addiction, Chasing the Screen. So this was a very personal subject for me. We had a lot of addiction in my family. One of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not being able to, and I didn't understand why then, but I was a little boy, but as I got older, I realized why, that we had addiction. And, um, you know, in the research for Chasing the Scream, I, I learned, I had really deeply misunderstood what I thought I had seen right in front of me ever since I was a little boy. So mm. if, you, if you'd asked me, let's say, what causes heroin addiction, right? Because that was close to me. Mm. If you'd asked me that 10 years ago, I would have looked at you like you're a complete idiot. And I would have said, well, dummy, the clue's in the name. Obviously, heroin addiction is caused by heroin, right? We've been told this story for 100 years that's totally become part of our common sense. It was certainly part of mine. So we think if, if I kidnapped the next 20 people who walked past your studio and I injected them all every day with heroin, like a villain in a Saw movie, mm. um, th at the end of that month, they would all be heroin addicts for a simple reason, right? Which is true. There are chemical hooks in heroin that their bodies would start to desperately physically need. And at the end of it, and it's certainly true, there are chemical hooks and you do get a craving for them. And, and we think that's what addiction is, right? They'd have this tremendous physical hunger for the hooks in the drug. That's why we call it being hooked, right? Mm -hmm. um, the first thing that alerted me to the fact there's something not right about that is when it was, that that's, that's uh, only a small part of the picture. It's when it was explained to me in Britain, where I'm from, as you can tell from my weird Downton Abbey accent, um, <laughs> uh, um, the, the, uh, if, if never I watch the show, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but don't you believe me? You're you're lucky. Don't don't watch it. Um, you, you know, if I step out of this interview now and I get hit by a truck, right? Uh -huh. I'll be taken. Not that there are any trucks on the street at the moment, but in normal times, um, I would be. And let's say I broke my hip, 
I would be taken to hospital and I'd be given a lot of a drug called diamorphine for the pain. Yeah, exactly. Diamorphine is heroin. Right? It's much better heroin than you'd ever score on the streets because it's medically pure, <laughs> right? Anyone listening to this has had a British grandmother, has a British grandmother who's had a hip replacement operation. Mm. Your grandmother has taken a lot of heroin, right? Lots of people in British hospitals are given medically pure heroin a lot of the time. Mm. And, um, and if what we think about addiction is right, that it's caused primarily or entirely by the chemical hooks. What should be happening to all these people when they leave hospital in Britain? Is that they should be loads trying of, to score? Yeah, loads of them. Should, some of them should be, right? I mean, this has been studied very carefully. It, it just doesn't happen, right? You never meet anyone in Narcotics Anonymous who says, you know, oh, I was, had a hip replacement operation and I, it just doesn't happen, right? Mm. And when I learned that, I, I just thought that can't be right. How could that be? How could you have a situation where you've got someone in a hospital bed being pumped full of really powerful medically pure heroin, they don't become addicted, and you've got someone in the alleyway outside uh, taking actually much weaker form of the drug who does become addicted? I was like, what? how can that be? I don't understand what's going on here. And I only really began to understand it when I went to Vancouver and interviewed a, a really incredible human being named Professor Bruce Alexander. Mm. who did a series of experiments in the 1970s that have transformed how we understand what addiction is. So Professor Alexander explained to me this story that we've got in our heads, right, which most of your listeners will have, which I had, which is that addiction is caused primarily by hooks in the drug, comes from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're really simple experiments. Your listeners can try them at home if they're feeling a little bit sadistic. You take your board in lockdown, do something cruel. Uh, you take that. <laughs> oh, the by the way, our lockdown is accompanied by a ban on cigarettes. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so accompanied by a ban on heroin, which will make this, um, make this experiment difficult to do. But you take a rat, you put it in a cage, and you give it two water bottles. One uh-huh. is just water. The other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will try both. It will much prefer the heroin and cocaine. And it will keep drinking them until it usually takes about a week. It will kill itself by overdosing. Wow. So there you go, right? That's our story. That's what we think addiction is. It seems like an uncanny human reenactment uh, in rat form. But in the 1970s, Professor Alexander was working with people with addiction problems. He, he looked at these experiments and he said, well, hang on a minute. We put the rat alone in an empty cage where it's got nothing that makes life meaningful for rats. All it's got is the heroin or cocaine. Mm. What would happen if we did differently? So he built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically heaven for rats, right? Uh-huh. They've got loads of friends. They've got loads of cheese. They've got loads of colored balls. They've got loads of wheels. They can have loads of sex. Anything that makes life meaningful for rats <laughs> is there in Rat Park, right? And they've got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drugged water. And of course, they try both. They don't know what's in them. This is the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drugged water. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. So you go from almost 100% compulsive use and overdose when they don't have the things that make life meaningful to them to none when they do have the things that make life worth living for them. And to me, this uh, and there's lots of human examples I can give you if you want, but and lots of science behind this, but uh, that were opened up by this experiment. But for me, I kind of realised as I was talking to Professor Alexander that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. Important though that is to many people, the opposite of addiction is connection. The, 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 um, the, the opposite of addiction is, 
getting your needs met as a human being. The core of addiction is not about trying to get high. It's the core of addiction is about not wanting to be present in your life. Because your life is too painful a place to be. I mean, that for me is is such a fascinating perspective that you're giving me there. Because, um, I mean, for me, it makes absolute... You don't want to be part. You don't want to be present. You don't want to be there. You don't want to be consciously part of a life that you're not enjoying, that you feel no fulfillment for, if you Mm. get my drift. It is a life that ultimately depresses you. So to s- escape that depression, you take something that alters your mind. And what we are talking about here is not, you know, I mean, nicotine and alcohol, yeah, they alter the mind or ni- alcohol more than nicotine. But ultimately, that is, I guess, is the difference between someone having a beer or two or three and saying, this is enough, I feel good, no more, versus someone that says, I'm going to have an entire bottle of whiskey by myself. I think that's extremely well put and once you understand that and we all get this with alcohol right but it's true of other drugs once you understand that you can see why what we do in britain in south africa in most of the world when it comes to addiction is such a car crash right because we have you know we punish drug users uh, we uh, arrest them harass them give them criminal records in some cases imprison them and, and once you realize that because you know we have this idea in our heads that uh, we do that because if someone's addicted, we need to give them an incentive to stop by punishing them. But actually, once you realize that pain is the cause of addiction, right, it's the driver of it, you can see actually far from stopping it, we're making the problem worse. And it's really interesting because there was a country that built, that actually changed all its drug policies based on these insights. So, and I spent a lot of time there. So in the year 2000, Portugal had one of the worst drug problems in the world. 1% of the population was addicted to heroin, which is kind of incredible and every year they tried the you know american drug war more they arrested more people they imprisoned more people they shamed more people and every year the problem got worse Mm. until one day the prime minister and the leader of the opposition got together and basically said look we can't go on like this what are we going to do they decided to set up a panel of scientists and doctors led by an amazing man i got to know named dr huao gulao and they said to this panel you guys go away because we, we can't go on like this. The crisis is so bad. You guys go away, take a year, look at all the best science, go to any country that's tried something different, and we've agreed in advance we'll do whatever you recommend. Just tell us the actual solution. So the panel went away. They looked at the science, including Brat Park, the experiment we were just talking about, and they came back and they said, okay, you're going to think we're crazy, but this is what we're going to do. We're going to decriminalize all drugs, from cannabis to meth, the whole lot, but, and this is the crucial next step, We're going to take all the money we currently spend on screwing people's lives up, harassing them, arresting them, punishing them. And we're going to spend all that money instead on turning their lives around. And interestingly, it wasn't really what we generally think of as drug treatment in South Africa and Britain and other countries. Mm. They do some residential rehab that has some value. Biggest thing they did was a program of housing, giving them housing and a program of job creation. So say you used to be a mechanic, you go to a garage. You say, uh, they'll say, um, you know, if you employ this guy for a year, we'll pay half his wages. The goal was to say to everyone with an addiction problem in Portugal, we love you. We value you. We're on your side. We want you back. It's also, by the way, much cheaper than what they did before. And by the time I went to Portugal, this, this approach, the decriminalization and the using the money instead to help people 
had been in place for 15 years and the results were in. Um, according to the best scientific studies, Portugal went from having one of the worst drug problems in Europe mm. to having literally the lowest drug problems in Europe. And I mean, um, there was research that I checked out myself years back and, and I was surprised by that because, you know, I was, I was, I can't remember. It was an assignment or something. I was looking at, um, you know, decriminalization of drugs and, and how that impacts it. Um, and, it's and what I was absolutely book, yeah. fascinated by was exactly that Portuguese statistics that it was, it was the lowest, uh, you know, one of the countries with the lowest drug problem, but it had decriminalized Indeed, drugs it's, largely. Exactly. It's incredible. Injecting drug use fell by 50%, 50%. And one of the ways, you know, it works so well. And I actually, of all the people I met for that book, Chasing the Scream on the subject, actually, I think it's one of the people I most admired was a very conservative police officer in Portugal called Juan Figueroa. Um, and he he was the top drug cop at the time of the decriminalization. Mm. And he said what lots of people totally understandably will be thinking as they hear this, which is, this is madness. If we decriminalize all drugs, we'll have a massive explosion in drug use. Mm. Um, because that's we'll legal. Everyone drugs. wants that. Yeah, exactly. It'll be crazy. And when I went to interview him, it was... I think it was 14 years after it had, done, had begun, he said, uh, it successfully passed. He said to me, you know, everything I said would happen didn't happen. And everything the other side said would happen did. And he talked about how he felt really ashamed that he spent so many mm. years prior to the decriminalization, making people's lives worse when he could have been making their lives better. And one of the main ways, you know, it works so well is that no one in Portugal wants to go back. They've got a competitive political system. They've got five big political parties. None of them want to reverse the decriminalization, you know, including the conservative parties, because it worked, right? And, and I think you, it, it, at some level, at, at some point when it comes to addiction and the war on drugs, countries like yours and mine have to stop copying the place that failed, the United States, and start copying the places that succeeded, like Portugal and Switzerland. No, I mean, it's absolutely fascinating, and, and, and it comes back. I'll, you know, even though they're two different books dealing with two different subject matters, they do come back to the social conditions that we are living under at this point in time. And I mean, it's, 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 totally. you know, that for me is another conversation altogether. And I hope that in the future you're available for that conversation yeah, because I think to, we yeah. need to have a conversation about the societies that we live in. Because I think that for me is the bigger problem or the bigger issue. I mean, it's symptomatic of both your books here, the issue around addiction as well as depression. Um, it's it's really the lives we're living. It's interesting because when I, after I wrote, my book about addiction chasing the scream obviously i went all over the world and i was i kept using that line that i said to you you know the opposite of addiction is not sobriety the opposite of addiction is connection and and lots of people said to me totally understandably and correctly well yeah but i know people who aren't lonely but who do become addicted right and i never thought that rat park that story was just about loneliness or you know social connection i always thought there's something deeper there's a deeper lesson here but I couldn't quite understand what it was, which led me to the journey about what does what does it really mean to be a connected human being? And I think it's about being connected to your deeper needs as a, a society that meets your deeper needs as a human being, a culture that meets your deeper needs. And it led me to make all sorts of changes in my own life. I'll tell you about one very quick one, if that's OK. The, you know, it's very interesting. Sure. Ancient woman called Bro- in a Bro- minute, Ford. if you don't mind, because I want you to use oh, the other yeah, minute just to give us in a minute. I probably can't do it. In that case, I'll say, I think the most important thing that we, we've got to take away from this 
is up to now, when it comes to depression and anxiety and the feelings of pain that underlie addiction, what we've been doing is we've been taking, we've been taking this, our bodies and minds are giving us a signal. Mm. My needs are not being met. And what we've done up to now is we've insulted that signal. We've either said it's a sign of weakness or a sign of craziness or purely a biological malfunction. I think we need to stop insulting the signal and we need to start listening to it because it's actually telling us something really important that we need to hear. I hear you, mate. I, I totally do. Listen, just very quickly, you obviously it's the two books that we have discussed, Chasing the Scream, as well as the one on, on, on you know, connectedness. Um, where, what are the titles? Where do people find them? Um, and, and also your TED Talks. Yeah, if you go to www.thelostconnections.com, uh, with a s dot com uh, you can um, find out where to get the audio book the ebook the physical book they're all available in south africa um, you can also see my ted talks also for free you can listen to audio of loads of the experts that we've talked about i've put the uh, audio from the interviews on the site so people got a lot of time on their hands at the moment you can listen to you know the leading experts in the world talking about depression anxiety you can take a quiz to see how much you know about it so it's thelostconnections.com Listen, thank you so much for your time. All the best to you, Johan. Oh, it was absolutely an so enlightening much. conversation. I really, oh, really enjoyed it. I really it. enjoyed that. Thank you. Great. Totally my pleasure. Cheers. All the best to you.